0: to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host for today. Today we welcome Dan McGinn, senior editor at Harvard Business Review and author of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. I'm looking forward to speaking with Dan about this fascinating topic, especially as it pertains to relaunchers. Dan also co hosts the popular Harvard Business Review podcast, Dear HBR, which bases its segments on letters received from HBR readers. Hi, Dan. Welcome to 321i Relaunch.
1: Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you. And before we get into the book itself, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to write psyched up and are you a clutch player or a clutch performer yourself
1: I, I definitely am not a clutch performer I don't think um, uh, although I wish I was um, so the book comes from really from three different sets of experiences, uh, very different experiences. The first was when I was in high school, I was a football and basketball player, and I was not particularly good at either of those sports, but I was always fascinated by the pregame culture, the things that the players would do and the things the coaches would have us do to try to get psyched up before a big game. So I was always interested in whether that stuff worked, whether there was actual science behind it. second thing was when I got out as, and became a business reporter, I would occasionally run into people who had a kind of routine or a ritual they would do before they went into a high-stakes situation. So out in the real world, I saw people who were doing some unusual things before they would go on for a TED talk, for instance. Um, and then the third thing was I started working at Harvard Business Review about nine years ago, and I started to see academic research that actually looked at how well these things work. So it was those three things, my own experience, watching professionals experience, and then seeing bits and pieces of research that wanted me to write a book that brought all these things together.
0: I love that. When you were talking, I'm just picturing, you know, one of these pro baseball players at bat, how they do some of those weird things where they, you know, touch the forehead and touch the bat and touch the ground and, you know, before they before they actually get ready to um, to hit the ball.
1: Yeah, it's such a prevalent part of sports culture, in particular. I've uh, two boys who spend way too much time playing video games, and one of the basket they play this NBA Live video game, and you can customize the players and you know their height and all their personal characteristics. But one of the things you can do in the video game is you can customize their pregame rituals. Like some of them will go down and touch the the support for the backboard before they play, or some of them will throw chalk dust in the air, which is what LeBron James actually. Does before games, so in real life, athletes have these. But now in video games, they have these rituals as well.
0: I love that they have them in rituals, and that that someone thought to work that in. It, it almost, you know, it validates and normalizes that ritual is so much of a part of, of some of some of these routines. So, can you talk to us about some of the methodologies in the book? for peak performance i know looking you know reading the book myself that you, some of the 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 headings were centering and rituals and reappraisal and trash talk can you give us more detail about those
1: sure well so the way i like to think of this is If you're about to go into an important event, uh, the kind of um, whether it's a pitch meeting or it's um, a a TED talk or a job interview or an important negotiation, the kind of thing where it's a focused period of time and how well you do will have a an important determine it in whether you're successful or not, at least for the short term, but maybe it's a big sales meeting. There's really three sets of emotions or characteristics you want to try to tinker with. Number one is anxiety. In general, you want to crank your anxiety down as low as you can. The second one is confidence. In general, you want to crank your confidence up as high as you can. And then the third one is your energy level. And you want to adjust your energy level so that it's appropriate to the task at hand. So if you and I were meeting one-on-one, I need a certain amount of energy to sort of have a conversation with one person. If I'm in a room with 10 people giving a talk, if I'm in a room with 100 or 1,000 people, each of those three things requires a very different kind of energy level. So, those I sort of think of it as like the equalizer knobs on a stereo. You want it like you adjust your bass and your treble and your volume, you adjust your anxiety down, your confidence up, and your energy level at the right. Level And the book contains a lot of different techniques, rituals, and uh, ways to enhance confidence. Music is a great one for some people. Um, So more important than the overall techniques are the goals of all this. And those really are the three things, your anxiety, your confidence, and your energy level.
0: Super interesting. You know, I remember a, uh, a commencement speech that was given by Conan O'Brien. I think it was one of the Harvard commencements where he was talking about his audition, I think for the tonight show or the late, late show. I can't remember. And he was saying, I had the easy confidence of someone who had nothing to lose. Uh, and that got him so relaxed. He was able to give his best performance. Any comments on that?
1: Yeah, it's, um, uh, so that's a psychological technique of clearly that was a very high stakes moment for him. You're only going to get to interview to be on Saturday night live once, maybe twice. Um, he was able to sort of artificially lower the stakes in his own, m- own mind. Um, and, uh, you see that in sports sometimes too. I'm, I coach youth basketball. And uh, we just finished our playoffs. And one of the the things that the coaches would say is, if you're a good basketball team and you're playing a bad basketball team, you might be confident. But on the other hand, that's a tough game because the underdog has nothing to lose in this game. So they can come into it really loose. Um, So the idea, if you can sort of artificially tamp down the stakes, try to, you know, convince yourself that there is really no downside to this. That's certainly one thing, you know, it might not be the most effective technique for everybody. Um, but for Conan O'Brien, it seemed to work back in the 90s.
0: Can you um talk about some of these methodologies? Like what is centering?
1: Sure. Centering is a... Um, it's a uh, set of mental and breathing exercises. It's been around since the 1970s. Um, it's loosely, you might compare it to meditation or yoga. It's a specific series of steps that people can use to try to calm themselves, get themselves focused. Um, like yoga, it's the kind of thing where, like, I can tell you what the eight steps are. But it's really much better if you, um, if you go on YouTube and you click on, if you type in the word centering, you'll actually see people do demonstrations of it. There's a guy named Don Green, who's a, a psychologist who really pioneered these efforts. So if you YouTube on centering and Don Green, you'll see a couple of really nice instruction videos. But it's basically, um, it's very close to meditation. It helps you to focus and it sort of reduces your anxiety before you go into high stakes events.
0: Um, what is the role of medication? You know how some there's some drug that people take before auditions that's supposed to relax them. What, what's your uh, thought about that?
1: So it's funny. It, the medication you're talking about is called beta blockers. And right. before I started reporting the book, I'd never heard of beta blockers, but- Once I started reporting on performance anxiety and talking to people about it, I found lots and lots of cases, even of people I know who I think of as very confident and very polished, who use beta blockers before big presentations or before they go on television. because I kept running into people who use these things, I ended up doing a whole chapter in the book on them. Um, It turns out beta blockers were uh, discovered in the 1960s. They were originally a blood pressure medication. Uh, A guy won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of them, and they helped lots of people with heart conditions uh, survive. Uh, In the 70s, musicians, classical musicians started using them before auditions. Basically, what a beta blocker does is it reduces your body's sensitivity to adrenaline. In. So when you get into that nervous making situation and that fight or flight instinct kicks in, the beta blocker kind of blocks it a bit. Um, I ended up going to a doctor and getting a prescription for these myself. So I've tried them a few times and you do, your sensitivity is a little lower. You just sort of don't have some of those stereotypical nervous. You know, I know people who, when they give a high stakes presentation, they blink a lot or their uh, mouth goes dry or they sweat excessively. Um, Those kind of symptoms, if you try everything else and you can't get a control of them, beta blockers are certainly worth a conversation with your doctor.
0: So, but would some people argue, or would you argue that for some people, the adrenaline rush is actually helpful?
1: It certainly can be. And the, you know, going back to what I said, you want to try to reduce your anxiety, but you want to try to get your energy level at the right uh, point. Uh, You know, adrenaline, can make you feel very anxious, especially if it manifests itself in sweating or dry mouth or those kind of things. On the other hand, it's a great source of energy. Um, So one of the things is uh, you just need to get accustomed to that feeling. It's like anything else. Um, If you're doing something for the first time and there's a lot of stakes attached to it, the adrenaline is more likely to make you feel a little bit anxious. But once you get used to doing something a bit, once you've practiced it a bit, you'll probably feel a little bit less adrenaline and you might get to the point where it's not as distracting to you as it it was the first time you did it.
0: Right. Um, All right, a couple more um, definitions of some of these methodologies. So what is reappraisal?
1: So reappraisal is a psychological technique where you're essentially... Very subtly reframing the way you feel. Um, the The best research on this has was done by a professor at Harvard Business School. She actually did it as her doctoral dissertation, and it stems from her own background. She was in an a cappella singing group when she was an undergraduate at Princeton. If you've ever seen the movie Pitch Perfect, it yeah. was a lot like Pitch Perfect, and. As a part of this group, she got to see hundreds of kids go through auditions every year. And she noticed that some people looked kind of nervous before they sang and they tended not to do very well. And then there was a second group of people that looked excited and they just seemed sort of happy to have the opportunity to do this. So she did this dissertation where she had all sorts of people do things like sing in karaoke contests and do high pressure math tests and do public speaking. And before they went, she'd have half the people just say out loud, I'm so nervous. And the other people would say, I'm so excited. And time after time, as simple as it sounds, the people who told themselves, I'm so excited before they did something did better. So reappraisal is just subtly trying to shift from anxious to excited.
0: Gosh, it's so interesting that just saying the words can um, have an impact. So think about that. Um, okay. And then one of the methodologies is trash talk.
1: <laughs> uh, trash talk, you know, obviously we see a lot of trash talk <laughs> in sports yeah. and um, the, the idea there you know part of trash talk is in a one-on-one situation you're trying to sort of distract your opponent or throw him or her off of her game um, but part of what trash talk does is it taps into your emotion of anger again it's um, uh, this idea that uh, there's anxiety, there's excitement those are subtle um, subtle shifts in emotions there's certain instances, where anger can actually be useful. There's been research for instance if you're powerlifting or if you're in some sort of a, you know, if you're an NFL lineman, feeling angry before the play starts is actually super useful because your job is to actually physically attack and drive somebody back. Now in a business context, there's certainly an argument that that the uses for anger are not going to be, you know, all that useful. Um, but there are business people who use it. In the book, I spent some time with the CEO of T-Mobile and he spends a lot of his day on Twitter trash talking about Verizon and AT&T and it fires up his customer base, it fires up his young employees. He's a guy who uses trash talk in a business setting as a leadership tool to try to get his people motivated to overcome their rivals
0: wow all right i gotta I gotta go back on Twitter and track that a little bit um, all right, what about rituals we We talked about some of these uh, baseball player rituals we talked about music um any other rituals that maybe that might be surprising that people might not think about as rituals
1: well um there's all sorts of examples of rituals um but more important than the examples are sort of the reasoning behind it so um a ritual is basically something you do the same way every time, and there's research that suggests that the body and the mind feel comfort in this repetition. One, of, There's a researcher who's done a lot of research on um, rituals, and one of the things he points out is he actually started his uh, research on rituals. He started looking at how funerals are done in different cultures, and obviously, there's a lot of rituals involved in the in the funeral, no matter what religion or, or background you have. And he says, you know, one of the reasons we do these rituals at funerals is because it's an inherently anxious time for people. You know, people are sad and they're upset, and they're looking for comfort, and uh, they want to sort of be told what to do. So the rituals provide this sort of outlet. In the same way, like if you're sitting in the waiting room before a job interview you're nervous, you know, and you can either sit there thinking to yourself, Carol, I think I'm going to screw this interview up. If I screw this interview up, I'm not going to get the job. That's going to be hard for my family. Or you can have something that's comforting, something that takes your mind off of that anxiety. You know, LeBron James throwing chalk dust up and making certain signals with his hands, doing a certain handshake with every one of his teammates. That's what he does before the game. He takes the basketball from the referee and gives it a little massage before the First play. Um, That's his way of sort of turning his body into autopilot, of dealing with the anxiety before a big game. So we all can sort of uh, use those techniques ourselves during anxious moments.
0: So I want to turn this a little bit now toward uh, how all of this can um, help relaunchers who are returning to work after career breaks for. all sorts of reasons, you know, people, people take career breaks at different lengths. Uh, some are elder care or child care or a health issue, or maybe you're a, a non traditional candidate and, and you're unretiring from retirement or, Uh, repatriating after an expat experience. So that's who's listening and, and who our relaunchers are. And because we have often been away from our professional identities for a while, we tend to exhibit or experience this diminished sense of self because so much of society attaches Uh, who you are as a person with the job that you do. So you're away from that for a while and you you, uh, experience this diminished sense of self and you lose confidence. And that's a big part of the relaunch process is regaining confidence. So I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about Um, whether there are confidence-building strategies that are um, inherent in this process of getting psyched up, in this case, usually for a job search, that um, you might have discovered in writing the book and that might be helpful for relaunchers.
1: There absolutely are. And it it makes total sense that this would be a set of techniques that would be especially useful to relaunchers. Think about we tend to get especially nervous about things either we've never done before, or that we haven't done in a long time, where we've sort of had um, a big interval between um, repetitions. And so, for relaunchers, if you know they haven't been on a job interview in a whole bunch of years, the first couple that they go on will probably um, elicit that fight or flight. Uh, instinct a little bit more heavily than somebody who's sort of in the throes of a very dynamic and active career that might be in professional settings all the time. So the idea here that um, relaunchers might be especially uh, helped by confidence boosting techniques, that makes total sense to me. Um, the one that I would think about the most, especially when it comes to confidence, is what some people call your greatest hits strategy. Um, uh, this is the idea that even if you've been out of the workforce for a number of years, in your mind, and your imagination, go back to uh, the earlier part of your career and And in the same way that an athlete might have uh, a highlight reel on ESPN, you know, at his his or her retirement ceremony, think about what your own highlight reel of your best professional moments would contain, like vividly try to remember them. Think about it like you're watching a film almost. And it doesn't matter if they were three months ago or 20 years ago, try to find a way to sort of vividly recall them. And in the moments before the interview, dwell on them a little bit. Um, You know, for me, uh, as a writer and as an editor, I go back to, you know, my favorite stories that I wrote some of them are from the 90s, the late 1990s. Some of them are from 2003. That's you know quite a long time ago. But before I sit down to write a hard article, even now, I'll sometimes pull out a story from 15 or 20 years ago and just take three minutes and read it because it reminds me Hey, you know, on a good day, you're pretty good at this, and it it primes me. It you know reminds me of my success and sort of sets me up for my next one. Um, before I go on a podcast like this one, sometimes I'll go back to an interview I did years ago on NPR that's still up there in the cloud somewhere, and I'll just spend 45 seconds listening to the way they edited me to make me sound sort of hyper-articulate. It it reminds me, hey, you you can put words together pretty well on a good day. Um, So try to find... vivid reminders, whether it's something actually tactile, you know if you have some memo that you wrote for your last job, whether your last job was six months ago or six years ago, maybe pull it out. you know if, if I, you know I know people who will keep emails from their bosses extolling them for ha- having done a good job. if you have one of those, pull it out and dwell on it for a few minutes. Find ways to sort of remember your greatest hits because that's a great way to inspire confidence going forward.
0: I love that advice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, I was a financial analyst and I took an 11 year career break. And I remember I used to be known as the spreadsheet queen. <laughs> so I would have to think about that again, you know, when I was getting ready to, to interview. Um, I didn't, I should have. Uh, I still ended up relaunching my career back as a financial analyst a long time ago. But um, about that NPR interview that you listened to, Dan, I bet they hardly had to edit it. <laughs>
1: oh you'd be surprised they make everybody sound like butter on npr they just make you sound so smooth but i mean it sounds a little silly and you know i understand lots of people don't have an npr interview sitting around somewhere but it can be as simple as you know on linkedin these days um people put referrals and recommendations for each other at the bottom of their profiles. It can be as simple as, you know, you're sitting in the waiting room for a job interview and you have a LinkedIn that is, is fortunate enough to have some of those things from former colleagues. Just pull them up and read what other people have been saying about you, you know, find some ways um, to, you know, just remind yourself, hey, there's a lot of people out there that think I'm really good at my job and yeah, it's it's been a few years, but I'm still the same person I was back then. It's just a matter of sort of uh, dusting those skills off and and um, showing a new generation of people how good I am.
0: I love it. Well, I just want to take a minute to um, remind those of you who might have just tuned in that you're listening to three, two, one. I relaunch. This is your host Carol Fishman Cohen, and I'm speaking with Dan McGinn about two topics. His book, Psyched Up. And the Harvard Business Review podcast that he co-hosts, called "Dear HBR." We haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, so, Dan, a couple more questions uh, about psyched up. Can you talk to us about the relationship between practicing and peak performance?
1: Sure. Well, um, practice is important in any kind of skill. Um, you know, some more than others, but I think it's necessary in all. So, one of the more interesting days I spent reporting the book I went to the Juilliard school in New York City uh, where obviously they teach you know very high-end professional musicians and you don't get admitted to the Juilliard school unless you have spent a heck of a lot of time practicing your instrument or your voice or whatever it is, whatever musical ability you're trying to cultivate. But what's interesting to me is there's a whole other set of things in addition to practice. It's the psychology part of it. So at Juilliard, they have a whole semester-long course that students take on how to deal with the anxiety of auditions where they teach techniques like this. Some of them are really... Um, surprising and a little crazy. So for instance, at Juilliard, one of the things they do is they'll have the musicians vigorously exercise, doing like burpees and jumping jacks and running around the room. And then they'll stop and they'll start playing their instrument right away. And the idea there is if you get nervous and you start to sweat or your breath gets kind of shallow, they want you to know what it's like to have to play with your heart racing. Um, So they try to prepare you to deal with the fight or flight instinct of auditions, and the idea here is that practice is great, but it's not enough. You also need this set of techniques and tactics to deal with the emotions, and that's really what adds up to peak performance It's the practice plus these emotional techniques
0: right you know I, I, I'm just thinking for myself because I do a lot of public speaking, and I've probably spoken now over four hundred times on career reentry topics, but I still practice uh, before I I give a talk. I just review it and and my talks are all different. So um, I always have to think about what's different and what I, what, you know, what I have to spend some extra time on. But I find that the more time I spend practicing or I make myself say it out loud over and over again, that actually builds my confidence and calms me down.
1: Yeah, um yeah. I'm a big believer in the idea that you need to have a plan to deal with the emotional piece of nerves and confidence and anxiety but if you spend all your time on that and you spend zero time practicing you're going to be terrible you know you need to you need to have the underlying substance of, you know I can't play the piano at all uh, and I could try every Confidence building trick in the book, but if I go into a piano audition, I'm going to be sunk because I haven't practiced at all. Right. So um, there's no sh- no substitute for the sheer building up of the skill of of what you're trying to do.
0: Right. Um, so there are lots of anecdotes in your book, and I wanted to know if you did you have some favorite moments or favorite interviews that you did, or quotes or or rituals or practices that that you could share with us.
1: Uh, one of the funnest days I spent was um, at West Point, the US Military Academy, they actually have a uh, big center there that teaches a lot of these techniques both to the just the soldiers, the cadets themselves, and especially to the varsity athletes. Um, they had a apparently it started back in the nineteen eighties. You know, the army football team is very competitive, and they had a very good football team, but they lost a bunch of games because the place kicker got nervous in the final moments of the game and botched a bunch of kicks. So they decided to invest in the psychology of how to deal with nerves. So. I spent a full day there. I watched sessions where they'd bring in a lacrosse goalie who had just lost a game the day before and they would help him process the sort of emotional trauma of the loss. And then the single most interesting thing I watched them do, they put this lacrosse goalie in this sort of circular chair, almost shaped like an egg, and it had these speakers on it and it had a video screen in front of it and they had custom made a professional audio track of his greatest hits. It was, they had a a voice actor come in and I'll I'll use you as an example, Carol. Imagine you are the lacrosse goalie for the women's lacrosse team at goalie. This music came on, this sort of Anthem anthem music in the background. And this voice comes on and says, Carol, you are the best lacrosse goalie in the United States. Remember the game at Navy where you shut out three quarters. And it was very specific. It was, remember this, remember this and then all these sort of um, mantra kind of things to try to pump you up and make you feel good about yourself and these athletes they keep these things on their phone they listen to it before they go to sleep at night they listen to it before practice they listen to it on the bus before the games it almost feels like a little bit of brainwashing kind of technique yeah. but it's all about that building of confidence and it's a, it's something I never would have thought happens but it turns out a lot of professional sports, they have people on staff who make these highlight videos just for the players, and they, they try to do this in a very uh, regimented way to try to manipulate the player's psychology to think about how great they are really, and um, it seems to work pretty well.
0: Wow, I love that. All right. I'm going to have to investigate that a little more and maybe I can even find some online. But that that is great. Um, Dan, let's shift gears now and talk about the Dear HBR podcast you base your segments on discussing advice in response to questions that are posed in letters from HBR readers. And I it looks to me from what, what I saw that topics can vary from uh, dealing with a boss who's a bully to dating at work, to how to say no to an assignment without hurting your career. I want to know if you can talk to us a little about a bit about the podcast and the history, and maybe tell us some of your favorite conversations.
1: Sure. We've had a lot of fun with this. Um, we launched Dear HBR in February of 2018. We put up a new episode every other week, so we've done uh, about 30 episodes to date, I think. In each one, we answer three letters from listeners all on the same general topic. And in each episode, we bring in a different guest. Um, some of them are academic guests, like Adam Grant from Wharton or Allison Wood Brooks from Harvard Business School. Some of them are uh, people in industry. The episode we published today, the expert guest is the chief human resource officer of PWC, the big consulting firm. Um, And together in each episode, the three of us—Allison Beard, who's our co-host here from HBR, the expert, and myself—we kind of talk through each letter for about ten minutes and try to, you know, sometimes we'll point them to a specific book or a specific resource. We try to, you know, stress test the ideas we have. Um, Some of the surprises are the sort of level of distress of some of the letters. Um, a lot of the letters are. People having conflicts with a colleague, people having conflict with a boss, people anxious about situations at work and I think the biggest surprise to me is how heartfelt and how um, in distress a lot of the letters are the you know when things are not going well for you at work, it definitely takes a toll on you emotionally, and I think we feel that each and every week when we look at these letters
0: right uh, i I can totally relate to that and and imagine that uh so how- So you do an episode every other week, you've done 30 episodes and what's the plan for the future? You, you get in letters and then you see how they group on topics and then you decide which ones are the best ones.
1: Yeah, we, um, we try to think of the show as being driven by our listeners. So it's not like we wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's do a, an episode on vacation policies. Instead, we very closely watch and track the letters that we're receiving. And when we see that we get, we have a critical mass of, um, of letters around a certain issue, we say, hey, we're seeing this a lot. Maybe we should do an episode on that. Um, the episode we put up today, for instance, is on a is on a topic of corporate benefits, like people who are um, unsure about or having issues with the you know the not the monetary compensation they get at work, but the sort of package of perks and benefits. And that's a topic I never would have thought of, but we started seeing a lot of questions about that. We saw we did an episode last summer on. Um, Going back to work with a disability, um, like a medical leave disability kind of situation, which again, not a topic I would have thought off the cuff, but we saw a bunch of letters about that. So we decided to, to tackle that. So we really are driven by um, the letters we get. The email address for it is hbr at hbr.org. So if anybody has something – we have done a show on um, – on coming back to work after a break. So the kind of issues that your um, listeners are dealing with, we've dealt with that in some seg- in some sense as well.
0: Oh, good. So before I ask you the final question um, about your best piece of advice for our audience, can you tell our audience how they can uh, find out more information about first the podcast, Dear HBR?
1: Sure. Um, The easiest way to find it is to, if you're on a computer, you can just Google on the phrase Dear HBR, and the website will pop up, which has links to every episode. If you're on your phone, you just choose your podcast app of choice and type Dear HBR into the search engine, and it should pop right up.
0: Great. And uh, tell us how people can find out more about Psyched Up.
1: So there's a website for the book. It's called Psyched Up the Book. It's com. psyched up the book. And I'm on Twitter at Dan McGinn, D-A-N-M-C-G-I-N-N. Wonderful.
0: So Dan, uh, the final question that we like to ask all of our podcast guests is what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today?
1: I think the best simple piece of advice is recognize that there are certain moments in your professional life when it's totally natural to feel nervous and that, uh, you need a plan for how you're going to deal with that. Uh, You can go to a job interview and just sit in the waiting room, uh, being anxious and thinking negative thoughts, thinking about the ways you might screw this up. Um, That's probably not going to be helpful. Um, You're much, you know, Regardless of the specifics of what it is you're doing, whether you pick three songs that you really like and you just listen to them on your phone in the waiting room because they're going to put you in a good mood and give you good energy, that's a plan. Whether it's um, printing out uh, a memo from your boss about what a great job you did in your last job, however many years it was ago, uh, having that in your in your pocket and pulling it out and reading that a couple times, that's a plan. Anything you can do, whether it's a ritual, um, have something that's the alternative to just sitting there and feeling nervous. Have something that you're gonna do to try to make yourself feel less anxious and more confident and highly energized before these moments.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, this was fun.
0: And you just heard from Dan McGinn, the author of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed and also the co-host of the popular Harvard Business Review podcast, Dear HBR. Thanks for listening to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media.